Why is the Bible replete, filled with prophecies of judgment? Because the people of God, all people, need to know that judgment is coming. Why is the Bible replete with, full of prophecies of salvation? Because all people need to know that salvation is coming. So there's a good chance if you hear the Word of God or open up the Bible and read, you're going to read a promise of judgment or a promise of salvation. Or in the case of something like the book of Joel, you're going to read both. The Bible is filled with both prophecies of judgment and salvation because we need to know that judgment and salvation are coming. And today we're going to talk about what we need to do in light of that and where our hope lies. So we'll start with Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, which would be rent, would be torn as the sign of repentance. But rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who needs to trust and obey the command to to repent and return to the Lord? Who needs to realize their sin and come to God with this mourning that's commanded? It is everybody who is guilty before God. Would you include yourself in that group? Everyone who is guilty before God, who has fallen short of the glory of God. We have in verse 13 the promise that we have of hope. When you come to God with a repentant heart, It is not with the trembling fear that I'm not certain if he will accept my repentance or not. Will he, will he receive my prayer for salvation or not? This is our hope. And it's not like the world's hope of uncertainty. Our hope is, is a confident assurance that God who said will do. God who promised will fulfill his word. So we have, again, this word in verse 13. We come to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents from disaster. Now, by this time, for those of you who have been here for the last several weeks, I think this is sermon number seven in our series, you should be very familiar with those words in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Joel is quoting verbatim from the the revelation that was delivered to Moses in the heights of Sinai so many centuries earlier. Moses had prayed in a time when the nation was threatened with disaster. He prayed, please show me your glory. God gave him a revelation. He declared his name. He displayed his goodness. And he said, 
The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who will by no means clear the guilty. So Joel, centuries after that glory revelation, quotes it verbatim. Here's a forward-looking prophet. We're we're going to see that. He's a forward-looking prophet, as the prophets tended to be. But now he's looking way back to this glory revelation. Why? Because the God back then was God in Joel's day. The God of Israel in Moses' day was the God of Israel in Joel's day. And he remains the same God today to you and to me. Our God is God from everlasting to everlasting. He does not change. He will never be anything less than what He declared at Sinai. Do you hear me? Your God will never be anything less to you than what He declared to Moses way back in the heights of Sinai 3,500 years ago. He is the steadfast God who abounds in steadfast love. So why did Joel bring up that word to the people of Judah in his day? Because disaster loomed. They had experienced judgment, as we're going to see. They could foresee judgment as Joel was promising. So what did they need to, need to do? They needed to go back to what God had declared and trust in the God who is good and kind, who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you and I today need to do the same. Because judgment is still coming. And salvation is coming. And the only people who will be delivered from God's judgment into God's salvation are the people who repent of their sins and call upon His name and trust in the abundance of His steadfast love. Those will be the people delivered from judgment into God's salvation. Where are you? Where will you be on that great day of the Lord? That's what we're going to consider today. We must repent of our sins and we must trust in the Christ of the cross who died and rose, who drank up God's judgment, who drank up the the cup of God's judgment dry to the last drop and poured out God's mercy. We must repent of our sins and trust in Him because judgment is coming and so is salvation. The people of God that the prophet Joel was writing to had just experienced God's judgment and it came in the form of a locust invasion. We need to understand why, first of all. And so we're going to step back, way back, and we're going to look at the the big historical picture and context and then this is going to completely make sense. Okay, Years and years earlier, centuries earlier, the people of God stood on the brink of the land of promise. God had promised that land that they were about to inherit to Abraham in what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. He promised him in Genesis 12. He ratified this covenant in Genesis 15. Now before the people inherited that promise of land, In the Abrahamic covenant, God renewed with them the Mosaic covenant. 
You remember the Mosaic Covenant? The covenant that said, if you obey my law, you will be my treasured possession above all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests. You remember that? That promise? That covenant? If you obey, you will be this in the world. So before they received the land promised in the Abrahamic covenant, God renewed with them the Mosaic covenant. And that renewal comes in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die. He's not allowed to set foot in the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of an incident of earlier disobedience. And so this is his last speech in the book of Deuteronomy. And the whole book, 30 some odd chapters, is a covenant renewal for this new generation. The old generation of unbelief has died in the wilderness over 40 years. Longest funeral march in the history of the world. And now the the new generation of faith is about to inherit the land under the leadership of Joshua. But the covenant is being renewed in the book of Deuteronomy. So let me sum up this renewal, okay? If they obey the law of the Mosaic covenant, then the land of the Abrahamic covenant will be blessed. They will live long in a land that flourishes and is divinely defended. But on the other hand, if they disobey the law of the Mosaic covenant, then the land of the Abrahamic covenant will be cursed. They will suffer deprivation in the land, and eventually that will climax in the loss of the land, in exile. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28 specifically, these specific blessings and curses are promised for either their obedience to God's law through Moses or their disobedience. Blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. It's simple. So when we read in the book of Joel of this unprecedented locust invasion, we're not reading of a locust invasion that was unpromised. It was unprecedented, but it was not unpromised. In fact, very specifically in Deuteronomy 28, verse 38, this is what the Lord said would be the cost of disobedience. He said, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. So centuries down the road, this is what happens. Let's read now from the book of Joel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? This, whatever this is, is unprecedented. Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And the prophet Joel is not giving us a good scientific understanding of different kinds of locusts. He is just saying that if there was any hope that something in the fields would survive, forget about it. These swarms of locusts in this unprecedented invasion would devour everything. I don't know if you've seen any 
pictures of what locusts can do. But um, I've seen this before and after picture of this tree, a very large tree, full tree, full of life. And in, uh, I can't remember the, the exact time lapse, but I, I saw the after picture. Everything was gone. This happened to the whole land. It was an unprecedented, but not an unpromised locust invasion. The land has been devastated, and the effects are going to be felt far and wide because not only is there this locust invasion, but compounding the problem is drought. And so they lose food. You know what happens in an agricultural society like this? They experience famine. They don't run down the, you know, the street to the shopping store. They experience famine. It says that food has been cut off. And so in verse 16 it says, because food has been cut off, joy and gladness have been cut off. And now let's look at verse 9, because I think verse 9 describes the most devastating thing about this particular locust invasion. It says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Why? Well, they don't have any grain to offer in a grain offering. They don't have any fruit of the vine to use for the the drink offering. And so the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Now these people lack the most basic elements to worship in the temple as God requires. And when you lack the most basic elements of worship, what do you do? What can you do but mourn? And so in these first several verses of Joel chapter 1, you have all kinds of different peoples being called to lament, to mourn, to weep and to wail. I'm using words that come right from the text. Weep and wail, to put on sackcloth, that's the garments of repentance, and and to cry out to God. There's uh, elders, as we saw in the first few verses, even the drunkards sarcastically are being called to to wail. Uh, The priests, of course, and and then farmers and vine dressers and all of them. They're being called to, to cry out to God. What's going on here? The physical condition of the land in that moment reflects the spiritual condition of their lives for too long. The land is barren now. Why? Because their hearts have been barren for too long. They lack the most basic elements of worship to offer up to God in the temple. Why? Because they have lacked the most basic elementary worship in their hearts for too long. So the locust invasion does to the land what their hearts have been like. It's exactly what God had promised before they came into the land in the first place. Blessing on the land for their obedience. Curse on the land for their disobedience. Well, is this it? Or is there something else? I mean... Is there anything next? Here's the thing about the judgment of God. And this is the thing about disaster in general. It signifies greater disaster to come. One day of the Lord judgment portends greater day of the Lord judgment yet to come. So look back at verse 15. What did all of this speak? How how did Joel the prophet interpret this? Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. 
They have just experienced judgment. And now Joel is saying, this is a taste of what is to come. And he describes that in chapter 2. So we have a day of the Lord, a manifestation of the day of the Lord in this locust invasion. But this portends a greater manifestation of the day of the Lord judgment. And that's described in chapter 2. This is the theme of Joel's prophecy, the day of the Lord. And you may remember that we talked about this when we went over 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 a couple months ago. The day of the Lord is the day when God comes for judgment upon the wicked and salvation for his people. So we have manifestations of it all through history while we still await from our vantage point the great day of the Lord, which is still to come. But let's read the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. The day of the Lord is coming. Dwayne Garrett writes, Joel called on the people to tremble, not because of the approaching army, but because the army was a sign of the day of the Lord. The coming army, like the locust that Judah had just experienced, was a sign that the curses of Deuteronomy 28 were coming upon them in full fury. In short, they were to fear the wrath of God. So Joel goes on to describe what this coming foreign army invasion will look like. And it parallels a lot what they have just experienced with the locusts. As the locust invasion had been unprecedented, so would this coming foreign army invasion be unprecedented. They have never seen anything like what is about to come. But just as the locust invasion was not unpromised, neither was this military invasion. God had promised it as well. It would be systematic and ruthless. It would be very tightly organized for destruction. And the people in Judah would not be able to resist it. Let's read a description, a sampling from verses 6 down through 10. Before them, this great army, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And then, verse 11. Is this just a foreign adversary? The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? So, sitting in between two judgments, 
the locust invasion just behind them, the coming foreign army invasion just before them, what hope do they have? What recourse is there? And that's when the text we read at the beginning comes in. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger, and He is abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. What do they do? They must hear the call of God to repent of their sin. They must return to Him with all their heart. One judgment was behind them. Another judgment was coming. But as long as there is breath in our lungs and as long as we have words on our lips, let us cry out prayers of repentance to God. As long as we have breath, let us breathe out prayers of repentance. When we do, when we repent and turn from our sin, what should we hope for? What should we expect from God? Well, ultimately we know that one day God is going to heal the land. In fact, in the verses following, which we're going to look at in a moment, we'll see that. God will create conditions of healing. But we don't know when that is going to be. We don't know when this earth is going to be redeemed. So what do we know? We know who God will be. We don't know what conditions He will create, but we know with all of our hearts what character God will prove. And that's why he gives this word. In fact, look at verse 14. It says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Well, the verses following show this is coming. But again, we don't know when he's going to create these conditions. But we always know what God will be, who he will be for us. We know that He will not ever be anything less than what He declared back at Sinai to Moses. He will always be to you. You can stake your life upon this and your eternal destiny. He will always be to those who repent from the heart. The God who is gracious and merciful, long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love. He will be that God to you. He will never be anything different to you than what He is. He can't be anything different from what He is. Or He would cease to be God and He would never recover. In verses 15 and 16, which we won't read, all of these different people from every different station in life are called to gather together as an assembly. And then verse 17 At this assembly, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Now, Joel was giving this instruction. This is what you need to do between... 
the locust invasion and the coming, and I think it was the Babylonian invasion. This is what you need to do. You need to get together. You need to assemble as a people, no matter who you are. You might be in the middle of your honeymoon, but leave that. That's what it says in verse 16. Leave your honeymoon, assemble with the people, and call out to God, and let God's people repent of their sin. That had not yet taken place. But look at verse 18. It says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And and the people have not yet actually gathered together for prayer. But Psalm 139 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. In advance, he knows their repentance. In advance, he hears their cry. And so in advance, he has pity on his people. And in advance, He relents of disaster and there is a deluge of promises. So what does he promise in beginning in verse 19? He promises, you know, what what of this locust invasion? He's going to heal the land. What about these foreign invaders? You skim over verse 20. He says, I'm going to kick them out of here. They're going to be driven into opposite seas. Now look at verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. When we read on in verses 23 through 27, let's, let's look at this. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will Restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So all of this is is completely wonderful. Even in advance of the people's obedience to cry out to God in this, this fashion and repentance, God in advance hears, pities, and pours out these promises of deliverance. But there's an issue. We, we said earlier that the physical condition of the land reflects the spiritual condition of their lives. So God can heal the land all that he wants But if their hearts are not healed, if their hearts are not made whole, if they have to continue to attempt obedience by their own strength according to the law, we're going to end up with the same cycle as before. The land may be healed, but if their hearts are not healed, then they're going to sin again, commit gross idolatry again, and then God's going to curse the land again. But this seems to say, actually doesn't seem to say, it says very clearly, my people will never again be put to shame. How can God promise that? How can he promise the healing of the land if their hearts are not changed? And this is where we come to verses 28 and 29. Just as he promised to pour out the rain upon them, he promises to pour out his spirit. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Throughout this book already, we have seen different people groups called. You know, they're in the, the first chapter, it was the elders, which really just means the elderly, the priests, the farmers, even the drunkards are all called to, to weep and wail over the loss of their land. And then later on, they're all called to repentance. The elders, the honeymooners, even nursing infants are, are called to be brought to the assembly to cry out to God. And now, again, we have this, this vision of all kinds of different people groups. The rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, all promise that no matter what their station in life, no matter what possessions they have, they will all possess the Holy Spirit. All the people of God will have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will have all the people of God. Now let's continue to read. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls." Several centuries after this promise was delivered to the people of Judah, God sent His Son from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to secure what God had promised. He lived absolutely sinlessly, tempted in every way that we are tempted, but with no sin whatsoever, not in His speech, not in His actions, not in His mind not in desires or motives or anything. He lived absolutely sinlessly and died sacrificially. He lived and he died in our place to pay the debt of our sin in full and pay what was required for God to pour out this grace on his people. He paid for grace so that it can come to us without any command or requirement that we do good works to receive it. All that is required for us to receive the grace of God is that we come with empty hands and say, spiritually speaking, I'm absolutely bankrupt. I have nothing in me on my spiritual resume. I will never have anything. There's nothing I've ever done or will do. I will not be able to turn over some moral leaf or whatever to earn your favor to commend me to you. Empty hands we come, confessing our broken and guilty hearts. And God pours out His grace because Jesus paid for that upon the cross. Don't think that grace is absolutely free in the sense that nobody pays for it. We don't pay for it. That's why it's called grace. But Jesus paid for it. He purchased these promises. He secured them for us in the cross so that when the risen Lord Jesus ascended back to the Father, He poured out the promised Holy Spirit. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. 
so that we can see the fulfillment of this promise. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus had ascended already back into heaven to the Father. And on the day of Pentecost, this great feast in which many God-fearing people gathered from the nations into Jerusalem, on this day the disciples that Jesus had left were all together awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that God poured him out with a mighty rushing wind. The, the Spirit of God entered into the room where the disciples were gathered and came upon them each in the form of fire. And then they went out. Now, you know, these, these former Christ deniers, these former cowards, the ones who had scattered every which way on the, on the night of his arrest, now went out to those people who had demanded his crucifixion and with power and with boldness and now the fullness of the Holy Spirit and thus that power and boldness, they preached the mighty works of God. Now their opponents were extremely skeptical and said, what are you guys, drunk? Because they're able now to speak in the foreign languages of those nations who have gathered in Jerusalem. So everybody can hear the mighty works of God. Citizens of Jerusalem said, are you guys drunk? Peter said, uh, don't you think it's a little bit too early in the day to be drunk? And he said this in verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my... and." the great vision that the people of God who have the Holy Spirit are unable to see is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe it. It's the light of God's glory shining in the face of the sun. Even on my male and servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't it amazing? The people of God in Israel had expected a conquering king to come. But Jesus came not with the judgment day of the Lord. He said, I have not come to judge and to condemn. I have come to save. He came to save. First of all, he came to save. And that's why he poured out his spirit. And this, this solves the great problem that we were talking about earlier. You know, if God heals the land but doesn't heal their hearts, the, the land is going to end up in the same condition as before. This solves the problem. Jesus brings healing to our hearts before the judgment comes. He pours out the Holy Spirit. Now, but here, this come, brings up another question. You know, Joel, the, the prophet Joel and the apostle Peter both speak about, number one, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and number two, the end of the world. All of this cataclysmic disaster, sun darkened, moon turned to blood. It's speaking of the end of the world. But only the first thing happened. So 
What? Well, they weren't mistaken. Joel said afterward, this will come. Peter says that it's in the last days. So what does this signify? The promise of the coming Holy Spirit was for the end. The poured out Spirit inaugurates the end. Inaugurates the last days. So you and I are living in what the Bible calls the last days. We're living in what the Bible calls the end times and the people of God have been living in the end times ever since Pentecost. That moment marks the beginning of the end. The Bible says we are the people upon whom the end of the ages has come. Well, here's the thing. As the Spirit has come, so will the judgment. The great day of the Lord is still to come when the world as we know it will end. And that's described in Joel chapter 3. Would you turn back there quickly? In Joel 3, the Lord first promises He's going to save His people. And, And He says that in the day that He delivers His people once and for all, He will also complete the judgment of the nations. And so what happens in Joel 3 is that the nations of the world are called to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It means the valley of judgment. The nations are called to gather for one last battle. Everyone who can, everyone who rebels against God is called to strap on their armor. It says that even the, the person who is absolutely weak is to say, I am a warrior. They are all being summoned to battle against God. But it's not going to be a battle. Look at Joel chapter 3, verse 12. And that's not the Lord deceiving them. He is saying, come against me. And there will be no battle because the destruction will be sentenced and carried out immediately. Joel 3, verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. means valley of judgment. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow with what? With wickedness. For their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. The valley of decision is not the place for these nations to decide for or against the Lord. They have already decided and now their decision is sealed. This is the valley of God's decision. Or to be even more accurate, this is the valley of God's verdict against all of those who refuse to repent of their sin. It's the valley of verdict. It's the valley of judgment. What do we do with this? What lessons can we learn from this? There are so many prophecy ministries built on looking for new signs. They're they're built on finding new signs and reading the Bible in light of those signs. So they, they preach, they teach, and you've got newspaper headlines and 
nobody reads the newspaper much anymore, the latest headlines put before you and says, you know, they're, they're, they're interpreting the Bible in the light of the new science. But you know what? There are signs. There's plenty of signs in abundance. But they all say the same thing. There's not something new to be read, some new meaning to interpret it. In fact, Jesus took some disasters in his day and he gave us the basic message of disaster for any time. There were a bunch of people who came to him and they told him how some Galileans had been killed by by Pilate. And Jesus said, do you think those people were any worse than any of the sinners in Jerusalem? And then he said, or that, that tower of Siloam, when it fell and those 18 people were killed, I don't know if you remember this or not, but it comes from Luke 13. You don't have to turn there. You can read it later. It says, when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed those 18, do you think that they were any more deserving of judgment? They certainly deserved judgment, but were they any more deserving of judgment than anybody else? Jesus said this about both of those two disasters. And this is the sign of all tragedy and disaster in our world. Unless you Repent, Jesus said. You will all likewise perish. So there's signs in abundance. Don't You don't have to pour over the signs. You don't have to try to figure out all of these details of meaning. The message is plain. Read the signs and return to God. We are the people who have turned and must always be turning. We are the people who have repented and must always be repentant. We must behold our God and trust that what he declared and displayed to Moses, he remains. He is the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I just want to give this note of encouragement as well. We are not under that old law and that old covenant in which we will experience as a nation Famine and pestilence and plague and, and invasion even and uh, locust invasions because of our sin. And the people of God may rest that we will never know God's curse upon us. Because the Bible says, first, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When Jesus died upon the tree, he bore our curse. Now listen to these last words. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. One last thing from the book of Joel. If you're still there, we got to read this promise of God's blessing from verse six, the end of uh, verse 16, the next couple of verses. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. 
And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. One day this is going to be fulfilled. In the great day of the Lord. And all of those who have repented of their sins and received healing for their hearts, whose hearts have been made whole and filled with the Holy Spirit, will enter into the new land. The ultimate land of promise. Into that city, the new Jerusalem, whose designer and builder is God. We will all enter. And we will be with God forever. Because God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. And He abounds in steadfast love and relents over disaster. So let all those who need to hear the call of God and repent. Father, we thank You for Your Word. You are so clear. We cannot come to the Bible and have this excuse that we never saw it. That judgment is coming. And salvation is coming. Father, it is so easy to think that You are slow to deliver on Your promises. But You are not slow as, to quote Peter, as we count slowness. For one day is to you as a thousand, and a thousand to you as one day. And our lives pass like a vapor. You are not slow concerning your promise. You will bring judgment upon this earth. And you will bring salvation to it. And I pray, Father, that every single person who is here would be on the salvation side would repent and return to you with all their hearts and keep on turning their whole lives long, trusting in you for their salvation. And I pray that one day, Father, we'd all be gathered together in that land of promise. I pray that we would be the meek who inherit the earth. Pray that you would accomplish that for your name's sake, for mercy's sake, for Jesus' sake, who lived and died for us. In his name we pray. Amen.